0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello again. Welcome to The Minefield. I say again, it's probably presumptuous of me, isn't it? It might be a first-time listener, in which case, welcome. Uh, As for what this show is... um, you can't describe it. It's all in the tasting. That's what I like to say. Well, lead Ali, is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Did I work my way delicately around that sort of ugly description we've had
0: for yes. eight years? The minefield for the most discerning of palates. I think that's kind of what you were reaching for, wasn't it? <laughs> well, it's better than what I had in mind, so okay, I'm right. happy to go with it.
1: Hey, today's show's been a long time in the making. Yes. I reckon I it, it emerged from an essay that actually my wife sent to me, read, and then I sent to you. When was that? Would it, would it even have been this year? No, it was uh November last year. Oh, there you go. Yep. That's how long yep. this has taken.
0: Although we've been discussing um, the topic. I mean, we've touched on it a few times during the show. We've talked about it many times off air. So uh yes, receiving that essay and reading yeah. it, that was just that was that was the thing that tipped out of yes, we absolutely have to do this.
1: Yeah, and when you say we've touched on it, not not in a sort of explicit or conspicuous way, hmm. just in a way that sort of I don't know, signals to the listener that every Mindfield episode is the same show. That's all. (laughs) Of course, we end up having spoken about these things before. Um, How would
0: you like to frame this, Scott? There is, incidentally, something really charming about that idea, that we only ever discuss the same thing. This is actually one of the things that always attracted me. My, my, My first great... I'm not sure if I've ever said this on air, Waleed, but my first great philosophical love was the aesthetics of the German philosopher Georg Hegel. And, and the thing that just amazed me about his enormous two-volume lectures on philosophical aesthetics is that whatever it was he was talking about, from the vibration of strings on stringed instruments uh, through to the pictorial presentations of married love, he was always discussing the same thing. The medium was different. But it, you scratch beneath the surface and it's always the same thing. Um, I'm not sure it was a particularly faithful representation of reality or the way things are. But I, I kind of liked it that it's almost as if whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're discussing, it's circulating around a common problem, a dilemma that you're just trying to find the right language for, the, trying to find the right solution to. And maybe the very failure says something about reality itself. So I, I kind of I, I like the idea that when people hear common names, common language, the same things coming up again and again, that it's not that we're unimaginative or have nothing to say, although that's always a possibility, but, but rather the very attempts to try to get to the bottom of something uh, are various ways of diagnosing the same moral or political or social problem.
1: So that's, yeah, that's a nicer way of saying it. I was more concerned that we were becoming... Churchillian fanatics, you know, that. Um, what's that saying? A fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the that's subject. Right. That's, that's right, that's <laughs> right, yeah. that's right. Which is a fantastic definition of it. I thought that was more a description. But let's go with yours because that works better for the promo. All right, you can't turn that into a promo. I'll tell you now. As soon, no, as, no. as soon
0: as you get to Hegelian aesthetics, I'm sure that most people would have started snoozing. Go on then. Well, we want to talk about identity politics. One of the One of the more ignoble aspects, I think, of public debate, as it's continued to evolve, devolve, and mutate in many Western democracies, is that things that are otherwise noble and constructive can undergo various forms of debasement, of commodification, of cooptation, so that they then turn into, they, they, they go from something that maybe not only had noble but also politically constructive origins. And then they go through a series of transformations whereby they become the great threat to the fabric of our common life, or they become a kind of uh, unthinkingly subscribed to commodity that then gets uh, reproduced and weaponized on social media as a way of distinguishing oneself and one's position from that of other people. In other words, just about everything, just about everything becomes subject to either unthinking commodification and use, or to demonization and threat. And I I really can't help but think that identity politics is just about the perfect example of that very process. There are ways that it's been used and deployed that, personally, I, I find philosophically questionable, politically disingenuous and unconstructive. And I find morally uh, dubious. Um, but there are ways that identity politics has been discussed by, especially, many on, say, the conservative side of the political divide or the ideological divide. That I also find thoroughly disingenuous. And the way that, I, especially, the way that identity politics is often wrapped up with uh, with what's often referred to as critical race theory, I just find it unedifying, unhelpful. And ultimately, both sides of the debate debate tend to do little more than to reinforce the existing prejudices or convictions of the tribe of the already convinced. In other words, if you want identity politics to be a powerful way of communicating and giving visual representation to voices and groups who have long since been excluded— from the conversation that is constitutive of democratic life, then I think there's something in that that's necessarily worthy and important. As soon as you see it as identity politics as a way of enshrining a kind of moral aristocracy, uh, a class of people who cannot be argued with, who cannot be reasoned with, who cannot be compromised with, but are owed simply obedience and uh, sorrow and repentance and submission then it's something that I think that's a way of saying that it is a kind of prime threat. It is an irremediable evil within the democratic conditions of our common life. So what I thought we could do in this conversation, and it comes off the back of the article that you mentioned before. In a book, there was its follow-up. What I thought we could do, elite, is we can begin picking through what I think we could probably refer to as the ethics and the philosophical underpinnings of identity politics. What are its demands? What does it require? That's the ethics. What are its philosophical or epistemological underpinnings? What understanding of the world and of the acquisition of knowledge does it presume? If we kind of begin with something like that and we try to work out to what extent does it lead to a constructive and increasingly just conception of democratic politics or practice of democratic politics? Or to what extent is it something that maybe corrodes some of our most fundamental underlying convictions about what democratic politics ought to be? I thought that would be a really constructive way of maybe moving beyond the heavily politicized, heavily weaponized, heavily ideologized uh, debate surrounding identity politics. And if I can just say one last thing, and then I just want to turn it over to you and hear what you, where you want to go with this. I'll, I'll confess that the way that I approached the topic altogether— um, and this isn't going to be any surprise to people who have listened to any episodes of The Minefield, is I uh, I think my deepest convictions probably come from within the civic humanist tradition, kind of more in its Arendtian, namely Hannah Arendt, and Hegelian expressions. And what's at the heart of the civic humanist tradition of political philosophy is the idea that communication, exchange, mutual recognition, and open deliberation, that these are the fundamental practices that we engage in in order to create something like the conditions of a common world. In other words, a shared understanding of the way things are, of the problems that beset either us all or groups to whom we owe particular claims of justice and repair. And that the processes of communication, of mutual recognition, of openness, of challenge, of deliberative exchange, that this exchanging of words, if I can just put it that simple way, that this creates a kind of city of words. It creates the communicative fabric of our common life and it allows us to see a common sense of the world, uh, a shared understanding of the political space that we all inhabit. And as Hannah Arendt argued, to my mind, unassailably, at the beginning of the human condition. It's by this work of words that we construct a common space within which we can all act, within which we can pursue together shared and mutually discovered ends. Um, But the other thing that I think that presumes is that when we say a common world, that common world is not necessarily a common world because that common world always presumes certain voices not being included in it. It presumes voices that have long since been excluded or silenced, or voices that they might say, this is the world that we experience. This is the world as it is. And a prevailing opinion might say, frankly, no, it's not. This is not the world as it is. That's a false, that's a dubious, that's an exaggerated claim. And so this whole process of mutual recognition, deliberation, dialogue, mutual understanding, This has to include the kind of ever-widening process of concentric circles whereby those voices that have been excluded or silenced, those voices uh, whose expressions and experience of the world have been given no, what's sometimes called epistemic merit. In other words, that is not the way that things are. The way that you describe things as being, that's not the way that things are. Um, That this kind of communicative space, the discovery of a shared world, has to include those voices that have not been given credence. And it seems to me that one of the great promises, one of the great benefits of identity politics is that it is the full-throated expression, or it ought to be in its best forms. It ought to be the the full-throated expression of accurate descriptions of the world as as it is experienced by those who have particular access to that experience, uh, the fabric of whose lives has been defined by that experience, and then whose expression, whose description of the world is inseparable from that experience of injustice. In other words, the particular vernacular, the particular way they communicate that experience, that that becomes part of the shared fabric of our understanding of a common world and therefore the space within which we ought to act together to try to remedy, to try to redress those forms of injustice.
1: Yeah. There's a danger that's inherent in that though, isn't there? I think about the... There's something about that that also obscures as much or at the same time as it reveals, Mm -hmm. right? So there is no doubt that people experience the world differently. Yep. And that their social context, their social situations allow that to happen. Mm. But one of the things that I think identity politics risks is that it wants to resolve a lot of those disputes along identity axes when there are other axes that are available but in the process get... Obscured. And we've spoken about this um, on the show. We've, I think we did a whole show specifically on it last year, we but did. there's probably a few um, along the way where we've like referenced the theme. But the di- the disappearance of class in certainly Australian politics, and I would say in a lot of Western politics, is an example of that. So you get this odd sort of situation. And I think this turns up in identity politics surrounding. I was going to say race, but it's probably actually all of the isms now that they come over time really to express a particular experience of the world and a particular view of the world that is itself, that itself embodies a kind of privilege, even at the same time as it seeks to rail against privilege. So when I think about the way a lot of what we might call, I'm just going to call it fashionable discourse as a sort of grab bag. Sure. Um, And we can critique that if we want, but I just need a place to start. So when I think about a lot of the fashionable discourse on things like race, that sort of discourse doesn't seem to chime with the experience or the the way of thinking of most people who belong to those racial categories. So by way of declaration, I'm a Muslim. I am of Egyptian background. You can call that Arab if you like, or you can call it African. That's a sort of ever-present um, duality, but, uh, but when I think about most of the Muslims I know who might be of, you know, Lebanese background or whatever, the way they talk is just completely different and the things they care about and think about is completely different to the sort of fashionable discourse on race that comes out of Muslims and others who are usually products of arts degrees at universities. Hmm. And therefore, you know, this shows up in the form of critical race theory, for example. They speak a kind of very postmodern language that is derived, ironically, from dead white French people, mostly, but which is alien to the communities that, in a sense, they're trying to describe Hmm. um, or whose life experience or social situation they're trying to describe. And what happens in the process is... I think, through this commitment to a kind of postmodern discourse, they end up coming up with a set of philosophical axioms or modes of thinking that, taken to their logical extension, would undermine the very culture of these racial and religious minorities that they're trying to defend. So the other way you can really prosecute these arguments is just to stop at some more or less arbitrary point and refuse to prosecute them further when they rebound upon the minorities, because this is one of the consequences, I think, of the way postmodernism proceeds is that it's a constant deconstruction. Hmm. And I I often wonder about this, like, you know, what level of deconstruction of minority cultures are are we prepared to tolerate here? (laughs) Because that's kind of the epistemic commitment. If you were to follow it through, that's kind of where you would end up. And I don't know that, That's somewhere that I want to end up or even that is correct to end up.
0: Well, can can I just ask you at this point, Willie, isn't it then the case that you need to end up identifying in advance a kind of epistemic bedrock? So this is how far the deconstruction can go until one reaches a particular point of unassailable truthfulness. And often that truthfulness will then be the particular experience, say, of colonisation or colonial violence or the particular yeah. experience of dispossession or of enforced servitude and so on.
1: Sure. So, look, don't get me wrong. I think those experiences as history-shaping moments or or eras simply cannot be overlooked. No, that's right. I mean, I mentioned my background's Egyptian. I mean, you, you cannot understand anything that has come out of Egypt without understanding the experience of colonisation of that place. Um, Not just that, I should hasten to add, but certainly that. Hmm. Um, So I understand that. But at the same time, we do run into a kind of epistemic problem here, don't we, which is that once you prosecute a claim of subjective experience as being epistemically persuasive, It's very difficult to keep that, I think, in its proper place in that we tend, and this is, I think, what tends to unfold in a lot of what I'm calling fashionable discourse, is that it then asserts itself in any conversation where it chooses to as something that is more or less unassailable. That is that the subjective claim of any particular identity group is to be taken as an objective truth. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting because while I think it's undoubtedly true that those experiences and accounts from those experiences have much to teach us, that's conceptually not the same thing as saying they're unassailable truths. And here we run into, I guess, the work that something like, which we have referred to occasionally, the work of something like standpoint epistemology Mm. does its... This is where it comes into play and that what it wants to do is impress upon us that knowledge is socially situated yep. and that therefore people in different social situations will have different knowledges and so on. And there's an element of that that is obviously true, right? But the pro- it's promiscuous, I think, or it's potentially promiscuous. And I think it's being used promiscuously because what it... it's Very easy to tip from that into a determined, almost axiomatic claim that knowledge becomes more or less incommunicable. Hmm. Hmm. And that at that point, there is nothing to be gained from exchange. There is only really mere assertion. And the question then becomes whose subjective uh, experience of the world prevails as quote-unquote true. So what you're talking about with common ground and common knowledge not being entirely inclusive is true, and there is much to be gained from a, an awareness of that and from an understanding that it's worth trying to expand that or at least being sensitive to what is excluded. Because it may well be that there are good grounds for excluding some particular contributions to mm. the common ground. It's true. Right? And we perhaps need a way of, like you know, a set of principles that allow us to determine that which should be excluded and that which should be invited in. So it's one thing to do that, but it's another thing, I think, to say that that is resolved by the lionising of certain subjective claims to a point of unimpeachable hmm. truth-telling. It's a very tricky balance to strike, and and I think the problem is the tools that we have in our discursive environment, don't allow us to strike balances. (laughs) What they allow us to do is um, prosecute things with a certain fervour such that they become almost an intimidatory truth depending on which social circles you're moving in. I think there's a worry with that. The other thing I want to say is I think uh, as I was listening to you, I had a couple of thoughts. One was when you were talking about both sides of this argument and the way they behave it, i have this sense anyway that at least as they popularly proceed there's a, there's a sense in which they need each other mm, it's true because they, that's they provide right. yeah they pr- they provide a certain grist for each's respective mill
0: yeah each and it allows them each to side is the other's foil and gives it and gives yeah. it its proper moral intensity yeah
1: yeah yeah at least to some extent mm. but yes i mean that's a little complicated because i think partly what you're seeing in the the critical social justice theories in the way that they proceed is they do like the foil of you know outrageous uh, pseudo conservative dictum that they can rail against, but actually probably their most energetic work is done against fellow progressives on the basis that they're not really progressive, um, and so you get a kind of civil war within progressive politics. That is, I think, actually probably the more relevant site of observation than what you, than sort of the left-right distinction. Yeah,
0: yeah that's right. Um,
1: but anyway, that aside, the other point I don't want to make, though, is, and this underscores the point I, I'm making about being careful about these varying claims, we live in societies, I think partly because of their liberal conceits, that steadily try to erode and undermine the, the common ground that consistently try to problematise it. Liberalism wants to do this through the, the maximisation of individual liberty and the, the belief that that will change the way that common ground is understood hmm. through a kind of organic process. Critical theories taking their cues from postmodernism want to problematise even that liberal evolution because those, that liberal evolution, it wants to say, is merely another expression of already existing... Tower structures yep. and so on, but it does seem to me that what both are trying to do—trying well, is perhaps too strong a word—what both are apt to do is erode and problematize some kind of common ground. I'm sceptical of that as a goal, or I'm sceptical of that as uh, as a um, as a destination, because I don't think in the end much can be constructed without a common ground. Mm-hmm. You can critique the limits of that common ground, but I fear for when the way that, that, that the mode of critique that is offered is one that actually makes a common ground impossible. Hmm. And so much of deconstructive politics, I think, wants to do that uh, or can't help but do that because the thing about a perpetual mode of deconstruction is you can't construct anything without immediately deconstructing it. Hmm. There's no logical reason to stop. Um, The only reason to stop is some kind of arbitrary claim of political preference, it seems to me. And I'm not sure how persuasive that can be in the long run.
0: Yeah. And look, just, I mean, because that's actually, that's quite a, I think that's quite a common critique of deconstructing, deconstructive politics. Let's just also refer back to, I think, one of the other things we've discussed quite frequently over the last few years on this show and it's it's not just a matter of kind of the constant undermining of the conditions of possibility through deconstructive politics. In other words, once you keep undermining and unraveling what the hell do you have left to build upon? I think one of the other ways that this manifests itself is through, if I can put it this way, uncompromising demands for a particular form of justice or of repair of injustices that takes the form of anger or rage. I mean, one of the things we've often discussed is kind of Aristotle's uh, central or motivating belief that anger within political communities always must be, in some senses, contained. Not dismantled altogether, but it must be contained because nothing can be built on anger. It It is something that sterilizes the conditions of common life precisely because... I mean what anger does is it it simply desires the imposition of a particular will on uh, reality as it is or as it seems to be um, and so it's not it's not simply kind of deconstruction as a matter of constantly undermining its own conditions upon which one can build some build something constructive but it's also the idea that there are things that one can do in the services of either justice or trying to achieve a just life that are so detrimental to the conditions of that life that nothing meaningful or lasting without certain forms of the tyranny or, disp- or despotism or a kind of countervailing injustice can be used in order to achieve it. Um, I was actually thinking, Willie, just, just while you were talking, I think one of the claims of identity politics that I find fundamentally uncontroversial, though, and certainly one of the presumptions of standpoint epistemology, is that there is something faulty that happens when the experience of a people or the experience of some at the margins of society, the margins of our common life, are translated into an idiom that isn't theirs. Um, When it's either abstracted or it's debased and minimized. I think it's often abstracted by by a certain kind of academic intelligentsia. It's debased and dismissed, often by political opponents. But I couldn't help but thinking about Albert Camus' novel, The Plague. And there's this one moment where the particular experience of being plague ravaged by the town of Oran uh, in Algeria. The narrator says that media reports began trickling in from outside. Uh, Of course, the town has been walled off, no one in or out, but media reports begin trickling in. And messages of solidarity begin being communicated to those who are suffering and dying or living with death and trying to repair. And the narrator recounts, the sterility of the language, however well-meaning, did nothing to alleviate, much less to address our suffering and it just strikes me as soon as you try to communicate the particularity of the social or political experiences of some into a vernacular that's not theirs you try to turn that into something else there is a kind of there is a kind of injustice there is a dissimulation that i think takes place which just goes to your point that when we talk about you know opening up spaces for communication increasing the number of voices that we're able to hear um, it often is not the voices of those within particular communities, but rather their proxies, their representatives, already among the elite of those who are already involved in the conversation. Mm.
1: Yes, but I do wonder how far you can expand it before it becomes incoherent to most. No, it's I true. mean, this is part of the problem. When you speak across all kinds of barriers or boundaries, whatever they are, translation is kind of inevitable, it seems. So, I see the
0: problem. Yeah, but translation is um, never one way. I, I think this is the interesting thing. Translation always has to be reciprocal. In, in other words, this is the yeah. world that I see. And then that gets communicated back. No, but now I'm going to describe it in a language you don't understand. And yes. And then, you that that and, then, understand it. and then is that no, fair? And then is that fair? Is that something that you see? Does this grasp something? Do I understand your experience? In other words, it allows yeah. for there to be something like reciprocal dialogue.
1: We've rabbited on too long. This is the minefield. Willie Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host.
0: Our guest is, in fact, the article, uh, the author of the article that Willie and I were discussing before. Olafemi Taiwo is assistant professor of philosophy at Georgetown University. He's also the author of. Uh, I, I don't want to speak for you, Willie, but I, I found it an astonishing book, and in many respects, both a philosophically and morally politically thrilling book. It's titled Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else. Femi, thank you so much for joining us on the minefield. Thanks for having me. So look, uh, at this point, I usually put a question to the guest. I'm not going to. What have we gotten right? What have we gotten wrong? Where do you want to take this conversation?
2: Uh, I mean, there's a lot that I agree with of what you have both been saying I see myself as, you know, more sympathetic to identity politics. And maybe you all are, you know, I would characterize myself as doing identity politics and certainly being on the team. Um, but I, I nevertheless have at least some of the reservations that you all have. One thing I was particularly struck by in the conversation that maybe we can talk a little bit about, is the gap between the versions of talking about an identity that you find on campuses or with people who have certain kinds of degrees um, versus the ones that you might find in, say, diasporic communities. Um, I'm Nigerian-American myself and grew up in a Nigerian-American community. And the kind of disconnect between how you know the range of things that were taken seriously in the academy and the range of things that are taken seriously you know uh, amongst family and family friends was one of the things that informed how i thought about identity politics i'll i'll just use myself as an example right you know i'm i have a a very left position that i would describe in different ways depending on you know who is in front of me I would myself say Pan African materialism. In other rooms I would say black Marxist. Maybe in some rooms I would just say Marxist, depending on, you know, what people what I can assume people are familiar with. Um but whichever of those labels you go with, um, uh, particularly in the US context, those are fringe positions in any demographic, right? They're not um they don't yet have wide acceptance with the maybe the possible exception of, you know, very young folks in the U.S. context. Um, But across most other age groups, um, these aren't things that most people would think about. And, you know, I I wouldn't say it's the predominant view in the academy either by any stretch. um, But most of the other views on offer in the academy as far as black politics go are pretty – are pretty similar, right? They're in terms of being points of view, theoretical points of view that are not widely accepted in the broader population of anybody in the U.S. So it's interesting to me. Um, One thing I've had to grapple with is the role of kind of cultural authenticity and explaining why anybody should have or support any of these kind of identity politics based positions, whether it's a particular version of black feminism or a particular version of black nationalism or a particular version of black Marxism, right? There is, on the one hand, a kind of impulse to say, you know, this is an authentically black position or an authentically black working class position or authentically African-American position, whatever the case might be. Um, But statistically speaking, it's hard to square any of those, any of the numbers with anybody's version of the claim. So, you know, you're forced to some kind of unsavory positions. On the one hand, you might say, well, people, in fact, have the view that I have, but wouldn't express it in the particular terms that I express it in because of my education and training. Um, Or you might say, People don't have a view at all, but they could quickly be one to my view if only they were exposed to the particular kinds of things I was exposed to or that I'm trying to expose people to. But none of those are really satisfying to me.
1: It sounds like the central tension is it's a kind of politics that seeks to critique and remove the elite, but which itself is necessarily elitist, right? Because it's confined... To, well, I don't know, I don't. I don't mean to employ the sort of Leninist terms here, but a sort of revolutionary vanguard—the people who see a particular political analysis as true—and on behalf of a group of people who don't attest to it, want to want to prosecute it. So, do do you a accept that that's a fair characterization of the paradox, and b do you have a response to it? Do you have a solution?
2: Um, I I think. It's a better fit for some views than others. Um, I don't think all of them are necessarily opposed to kind of elitism as such. I think there are some points of view that are opposed to maybe the particular elites that we have, but maybe would be okay with a different kind of basis for top-heavy control of a society um but but certainly in the views that are closest to mine there is there's definitely a hostility to top down management and centralization of power i would say um so i do think that there is a sort of tension with at least some of these views and the impulse to see a particular well-educated segment of the population as a kind of as a kind of vanguard, a kind of advanced guard that has not only a claim to particular kinds of knowledge but a, about the world, but a claim to particular kinds of knowledge about what's good for the group um, and averse to a particular kind of accountability for what might be good for the group. I I do think there's a bit of that going on. But I actually think the situation's a little bit worse. You know, I kind of just think a lot of these questions we're talking about just aren't being asked at all. It's not that people have kind of politically unsavory answers to what to do about these difficult demographic questions, but it's just... You know, people are kind of wrapped up in ivory tower disputes or disputes in the newsroom or disputes in the boardroom, whatever the particular elite spaces that are relevant might be.
0: Can we get to the question of epistemology? I don't want to sort of shift too radically from the political sphere to the more overtly philosophical, but it does strike me that there may be two different conceptions of epistemology, its purposes and its limits that we're kind of talking around here, and it might actually be useful to kind of tease them out. It seems to me that the two different conceptions at the basis of maybe this conundrum is epistemology as something that is inherently communicable. This would be the the older, the more traditional, say, philosophical notion, that there are things that can be known. These things can be objectively known And on the basis of a particular form of the canons of reason, these things that are objectively known, that can be objectively known by anybody, can then be communicated relatively objectively to anybody. In other words, epistemology becomes, if you like, a basis for shared understanding and communication. Um, That would be Immanuel Kant's notion. That would be René Descartes' notion of epistemology, for instance. Then you've got the idea of epistemology that would say be more Hannah Arendt's, which is that there are things that contribute to a kind of store of knowledge. There are things that feed into, they're tributaries, they're rivulets that feed into a shared conception of a common world. Uh, sometimes uh, philosophers or social theorists refer to knowledge production. So, what things that count as being able to be included in that conception of a common world. And those things that aren't, it strikes me that we're kind of in the way that we're talking about epistemology, we're falling, we're moving back and forth between the two or we're falling in between them both. Um, and it does strike me that one of them is more linear. The first one, in other words, it's sort of epistemology as that which can be communicated. And whereas the second one, epistemology as that which contributes to an understanding of a common world, that's more reciprocal. That's more deliberative and negotiative. Isn't it? Well, what am, I, am, I, am I missing something here that kind of helps us proceed?
2: I don't know if you're missing something, but I think there, there's one of the things that's been so integral to the way standpoint epistemology has been developed and the kind of challenge that's been made to these longer standing ways of talking about knowledge is putting pressure on, you know, what the sharing and doing of things with knowledge is, has to do with these kind of deeper knowledge questions. So we could ask, is knowledge in principle communicable, right? Is knowledge the sort of thing that one could have, could translate into shareable terms and make available to other people? And then there's the non-principled but contingent question of what will happen when I, the specific kind of person that I am, actually do the knowing of stuff and the attempt to render it communicable. Um, So there's a big literature on things like epistemic injustice, starting with, you know, a long history Uh, I shouldn't say starting with, but continued by a long history of feminist thought, um, including recent work by figures like uh, Miranda Fricker and Christy Dotson, and all these people who are thinking deeply about these questions. And one thing they're pointing out is there's all kinds of contingent social reasons why I might know a thing and even render it communicable, but it'll turn out that. I don't actually succeed in communicating that information. Why? Because actually transmitting information has to do with things like credibility. Am I the kind of person that people believe? Hmm. Um, Is the form of my testimony the kind of form of testimony that people believe? What are the reasons for either of those? Um, They could be forms of bigotry that attach to me as a person. They could be maybe somewhat more complex forms of bigotry that attach to communication styles, and both of those might have, as their ultimate explanation, historically constituted chains of oppression, um, but in the most dramatic senses, but also in this very mundane sense of who believes who in a room. And so when we're talking about standpoint epistemology, I think there's often an attempt, you know, or... I think better to say there's often a relation of standpoint epistemology to deep questions of what knowledge is and how we share it. And it is absolutely concerned with those things, but it's also linked to much more contingent and less mysterious questions like who do we find interesting? What does expertise mean? Um, Who do we think has those things? and are, in a way, moving between these levels of abstraction has, I think, helped lead the identity politics discussion aside, hmm. or astray, I should say. Certainly people have a range of opinions on these subjects, but we don't really need to establish whether or not knowledge is in principle communicable to think that you know misogyny presents an actual practical obstacle to whether or not women are believed in general in particular about things that have to do with sexual violence right i don't think that's the nature of the disagreement that people who are giving who are saying identity politics type things about believing women are having with people who find fault with those slogans or ways of talking. Hmm.
1: That voice belongs to Olafemi Taiwo, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown University. I guess for this week's edition of The Mind Willie Dali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. I suppose for me the problem arises where that morphs into this thing I was gesturing to earlier, which is that suddenly then the dictum of someone in a particular socially situated position becomes unimpeachable. And you do see this, I think, occur within progressive politics all the time now, which then, in a weird way, Creates and I suppose you refer to this in your book a little bit, if if obliquely, by this idea of deference politics, right? Mm-mm. Of people kind of standing back and letting people who have a particular identity label speak um, in a way that allows everybody else just to recede. And what disappears in that process is actual engagement, right? Because it seems to me that once you replace sort of an axiomatic dismissal on the basis of a particular identity with a, an axiomatic acceptance of anything they say, I'm not sure you're getting anywhere further. What, what you really need, don't you, is some way of engagement to take place, which even involves and must involve a challenge to that which is asserted by the person under the relevant identity label, if a more informed challenge than there might otherwise be.
2: I think that's right, but one of the things... That I think we should notice, and that in the book, I at least try to give some reasons for noticing is that we're not actually at that point debating the high level abstract claims about standpoint epistemology. So I take it standpoint epistemology is more or less these three things knowledge is socially situated, there are some particular kinds of knowledge that marginalized people have advantages in getting. And when we're doing research, we should keep track of both those things that I just said. Right. Um, It doesn't have to be research. When we're living our lives, we should keep track of these facts. So standpoint epistemology is just saying, notice this. And the task from there is to figure out, okay, what do we do about the fact that knowledge is socially situated? And deference epistemology isn't an embodiment of standpoint epistemology, if understood this way. Um, this idea of just taking a backseat to whichever marginalized person you happen to be speaking with turns out to be a particular strategy for responding to that information. But we could imagine responding to the fact that knowledge is socially situated in a lot of ways, right? Maybe it doesn't have to do with individual interactions at all. Maybe what we say is, you know, at the level of the organization of science as an activity, maybe we have lots more citizen science and we make sure that it's distributed in such a way that marginalized people get to participate, get to control processes in their communities of doing research and doing investigations of things, and they also get a deciding role in explaining what the results are and maybe even acting on them that you know there will be lots of conversations at each level of the scientific process um, but that way of responding to it that i just outlined doesn't say anything about who has to defer to who in those conversations that that doesn't even come up if we responded that way can, can you um, just unpack not, that
1: example, though, and explain how that connects with standpoint epistemology specifically?
2: Yeah. So the idea is that research programs should reflect the fact that knowledge is socially situated and that marginalized people have some advantages in gaining particular forms of knowledge. So one thing that we could do is say, well, we have, a, we have higher education systems worldwide that tend to concentrate access to research activity in the most advantaged people and not the most marginalized people. So that's the thing we should change. We should make CIS and science broadly accessible um, in a way that targets specifically the most marginalized people. And those people should get to participate in scientific activities that they themselves direct, or at the very least participate in directing, right? So that would be a result of another way of thinking about what to do with these thoughts about standpoint epistemology. Maybe instead of deciding how conversations should go, we could be deciding how science should go. Now, I'm not right this second trying to convince people of that particular view of what we should do about standpoint epistemology. All we need, right, the second is to notice that that's completely different from the idea that what we should do with standpoint epistemology is decide who should defer to who in a conversation based on who's more marginalized than who or who's more relevantly marginalized than who. It's a completely different response it doesn't involve Coming to a different conclusion about whether knowledge is socially situated or whether marginalized people have advantages in getting some forms of knowledge or whether research should reflect those things.
0: Hmm. And I guess the other thing that that, of course, leads to is it means that the solution or the immediate response, I don't want to talk in terms of solution, the immediate response to the awareness of that situation isn't some form, and and I think, I mean, this for me is one of the most powerful uh, elements or strands to your argument. It doesn't lead then to forms of, say, gestural or performative or even symbolic response, but it provides an opening onto the possibility of something far more constructive. And I guess this is where, I mean, surely any theory of knowledge its production, its communication, and the extent to which it's allowed to inform a richly and uh, a richly reticulated understanding of a common world. It must surely lead to a mechanism by which, or an understanding of the world through which, uh, richly diverse coalitions can join together. For the achievement of a common goal, even if it's not, say, an ultimate goal, like the realization of a just society. And I guess this, the, this for me, is one of the most significant elements of your critique of, say, deference politics, of moving aside and letting others have priority of speech or priority of, of access or representation, versus constructive politics, which is creating the space uh, or renewing a space within which something genuinely participative and open to broader coalitions can in fact uh make itself
2: seen yeah i think that's i think that's right you know there's a lot of things there's a lot of problems that we could have with deference politics you know maybe it treats knowledge as this mysterious thing that can only be gained through experience rather than a thing that we can share with each other um maybe it's inappropriate in terms of the burdens that it puts on certain marginalized people. Those are both things that I think and their are reservations that I have with deference politics. But maybe more than anything else, more importantly than anything else, I think deference politics just changes the subject. Ultimately, we care about marginalization and oppression, not because it screws up conversation, but it screws up the world. It screws up social life. It screws up our lives. That's the thing that we're trying to change. That's the thing we're trying to intervene on. That's the thing that allows us to see what the point is of tracking the specific ways that marginalization might upset this or that aspect of our day-to-day existence. We're not trying to change the aesthetic of oppression or make it more palatable, we're trying to end it. And if there's one thing that I have to say about deference politics, if there's one danger associated with it that keeps me up at night, it's the fact that it seems to me to change the subject of what we should do about oppression in our lives to what we should do about oppression in a particular room or in a particular conversation or in a particular interaction. And if nothing else, I hope that constructive politics gives us, as an an alternative, a politics based on focusing on what we can build together and how we can hopefully eventually build not only better things tomorrow, but the kinds of things tomorrow that we can use to make the entirety of society just the day after that. And if nothing else, I hope the constructive view that I've talked about um, gives us you know, some ways into talking about that possibility. Mm.
1: And it relies on alliances, but also epistemologies that cross hmm. over identity barriers. That's the key thing there, right? Yes, so absolutely. None of that is possible if you take a version of standpoint of epistemology that makes that impossible that's right yeah um although femi's book is called elite capture how the powerful took over identity politics and everything else it's a big claim really and it's a short book so he does it very efficiently (laughs) uh femi thank you very much for guiding us through this conversation really appreciate your time thanks so much for having me that's femi taiwo assistant professor of philosophy at georgetown university our guest for this week's edition of the minefield uh, which is at an end we'll see you soon